Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Giri Ifergan, who is uh, at Monash University in Australia. Uh, he researches Indian philosophy and Tibetan Buddhism. We'll be talking about his uh, brand new uh, Equinox book, The Psychology of the Yogas. Uh, Giri, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this is, um, this is a fascinating uh, topic. Can you tell us how you got down the road of researching this? What's the backstory of this research? Yeah, um, the backstory goes to uh, um, somewhere at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, I came across a book by uh, uh, Jack Hornfeld. And the title of the book is uh, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. Uh, although the catchy kind of title, I was um, fascinated by, the, by, by some of the content of the book. And the contents of the book was testimonies, testimonies of people, Western people mostly, who spent years in India, in Tibet, at the Himalayas with yogis, with gurus, and practice for years, yoga and meditation. And they have reported um, touching on the peaks of meditation, which is uh, boundless love and compassion and lucidity and clarity and visions, uh, basically the peak of meditation. But then in the testimonies in the book, they, most of them have mentioned that when they came back to the West, they have experienced serious psychological crisis, whether it was with their health, with money, with relationship, with family, uh, professional uh, career, etc. So I asked myself, uh, where is the spiritual pro- uh, promise? Uh, I mean, because the spiritual promise is that if you only follow this kind of path and you will attain this kind of mental state, it means that psychologically you will be free. Um, and you will be 
in a way, uh, diluting or maybe even resolving all notions of suffering in one's life. So that was the first, um, uh, the first road sign that, or bulb that was lit in my mind. Later on, I met uh, a friend of mine from Israel who's a naturopath that for a few decades participated in um, Vipassana uh, retreats. And he saw time and again the same people coming to the retreat. And if, if it wasn't the same people, so people of the same, of a similar character that he could recognize that came to the retreat. Then when asking whether he witnessed any radical transformation like spiritual, um, like, like the spiritual promise tells us about. And then he said, no, he didn't see anyone that has gone through a radical transformation. Although people had insight and introduced some changes into their life, which is beautiful and, 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 and wonderful uh, in that sense, that meditation was conducive to their life. He said he didn't witness any radical um, uh, change. But what really broke the camus uh, straw was the, um, I came across an article by Jack Engler, who's a psychologist from Harvard, who worked with Dan Brown on a, a survey uh, that was uh, attending um, people who has, who've gone into practice of Vipassana for three months, on a retreat for three months. So they have uh, conducted Rorschach, Rorschach's um, um, survey with the practitioners before and after. And he also noticed, he didn't notice any major change psychologically that took place within the existence of the practitioners, the day-to-day life. And his conclusion was striking. He was saying problems of anger, jealousy, um, depression, all these occur in relationship, and they should be resolved in relationship. Sitting on the cushion is not enough. So this has driven me to ask, uh, well, what yoga and meditation offer us in terms of a psychological framework, uh, framework to understand the human psyche and what practice, what practice they provide us to address psychological issues and how we could implement it. Uh, so yeah, this that was my motivation for the. Uh, yeah, there's the, there's some there's so much that comes to mind and, and anecdotally in terms of various um, um, spiritual seekers and and and, and, and coaching conversations and. and, and, and courses that I've been involved in. I'll maybe save some of the comments for later on in the podcast. Tell us in a nutshell for the listener, what is the core uh, takeaway argument thesis? What is the book essentially arguing? Uh, The book is saying that um, when you look into the ancient texts of yoga, like the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, so Patanjali offers a very profound psychological framework for understanding the human psyche. Really profound. And not only that, that aside, aside from meditation, from asana, rituals, or cultivating moral uh, rules or instructions of being, uh, as a way of being, uh, Patanjali offered that framework 
not only the theory, but also the practice that can aid us to resolve or resolve or dilute psychological matters that we experience in our life. So that was my main argument. And then I was saying that implementing, implement, um, yeah, in between that, with regard to the practice, the practice um, is um, limited to the person in a way, limited, I'm saying, with some limited guarantee, to the person in the cave. So I had to bring this practice and make it accessible to the 21st century practitioner. Um, so that was a, a, a big step in my work. And then I was saying, look, uh, this practice is designed to work for the long, long run of time. And in India, in Indian philosophy, when you speak about time, the time has time. We speak about reincarnations. We speak about a long uh, duration of time beyond our cycle of life. And then personal cycle of life. So I um, ask myself, what Western psychology can offer us when we cannot really resolve issues with the aid of... Um, of Indian, of what Patanjali offers us, for example, because I don't, until I will reach these peaks of, of meditations or resolving my psychological issues through the aid of yoga, until then, I don't want to hurt my, the people I love. I don't want to hurt my environment, people in my, in my professional environment. I don't want to hurt myself uh, and emotionally and psychologically. So what can I do? So then I make a shift to Western psychology, showing how Western psychology can help us resolving in the short term, in the short term, some psychological issues that can be complementary, complementary of yoga and help to integrate our, our psychology with our spirituality. So Would you say... Round, yeah. Sure. Would you say that your work is, um, in essence, a bridge between um, 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 yogic psychology and Western psychology, or would you say that's too simplistic a characterization? No, I, um, I, my aim wasn't to create a bridge, uh, because to create a bridge, I'll have to go through a huge um, uh, process of a study which will have to compare between Western psychology. And Western psychology has so many methods and streams and so inter, um, intra-criticism between the various streams that it would be very difficult to just, in one uh, chapter, to, 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 to compare uh, between the two. Um, so... My aim was to see what I can learn, what I can learn in Western psychology that can assist me on my yogic path. And it's not by way of synthesis or bridging or, or, or synthesis, but just looking at something else and look what I can use there. It's like the, what we call uh, naturopathy uh, or homeopathy and modern uh, medicine. So, you know, sometimes you go for maintenance to see a homeopath or a Chinese doctor, while basically we will resort to um, 
Western medicine. So it wasn't a synthesis or a bridge, just what, what I can learn from momentarily in a point of time, what can, I can do to cure psychological issues and then continue with my uh, meditation and yoga. So perhaps a complementarity where, as you, uh, to use your metaphor, that there are times where alternative paradigms might complement a Western medical paradigm. There's sort of a complementarity between uh, some aspects of Western psychology and, and uh, um, um, with respect to integrating the vision of, of the yogic quest, yes? Yes, yes. This is my point. Yes. Now, would you say, for those listening, is this book particularly geared towards uh, seekers, um, endologists, psychologists? You know, just who would you say is the prime audience for the book? Yeah, this is... Uh, the, the, the book uh, has a very uh, strict work uh, of scholarship where I relate to classic commentator, modern commentator, to the text various texts like um, the Yoga Sutra, the Samkhya Karika. So it has a scho- scholar um, a profound aspect of it, in my view. Um, there is, uh, which includes also, which include also uh, a deep interpretation of the yogic psychological practice of Praktipaksha Bhavana, which means practicing or meditating on the opposite. And as such, it, ref- it pro- refers or offers uh, practitioners of yoga and teachers of yoga a whole method how to work with their own psychology and to understand their own psychology and move forward. It can also assist um, therapists and psychologists who are interested to learn what yoga can offer uh, in that sense and how to borrow it or use it, it's up to them. Uh, and what I wanted to show that yoga is much more than just the asana you see, or yogic, uh, physical yoga that you see today in so many studios. It is much more than the history and the philosophy. It has also this uh, psychological framework. So as such, um, I approach a wide audience and here, uh, I may be in a problem because scholars will say, uh, as a practitioner, you are too close to your object of research, and hence you cannot be that objective or you don't have that too much of a, a reflexive, you know, reflective point of view. And practitioners will say that I may be too intellectual, highbrow kind of intellectual, and, and, um, and relate too much to the scriptures, and basically everything is but an experience. So, uh, and psychotherapists would, would be uh, saying, hey, um, you, you are t- talking about uh, psychology, but w- what makes you qualified to speak about psychology? So I'm a scholar, and I read uh, psychology uh, articles in, in psychology journals, and I can read and understand and consult friends who are psychologists, and therefore I could bring this entire uh, picture. Well, the, the cross-pollination between uh, scholarship and practice is certainly um, one of the recursive themes on the podcast. There have been a number of, easily a dozen um, monographs on um, yoga, some aspect of yoga covered. And um, off the top of my head, the majority of the interviewees happen to be scholar practitioners. And so this comes up um, 
particularly, I think, in uh, yoga studies, but in various subfields of Hindu studies. And uh, to my mind, it seems that certainly there are uh, practitioners who are uncritical, and certainly there are, are scholars who are uh, perhaps uh, uh, insensitive or aloof or detached. Um, but they're, they're not; these categories, to my mind, are not mutually exclusive. And when done well, what do we have? We have um, we have a, 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 a maestro, we have a musical virtuoso who really understands music history and music theory as well. It's they're not mutually exclusive. When done well, I think they're they're mutually informative. Um, modes as long as one understands the difference between the two lenses um, so I, provided that the scholarship is good and the, 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 the provided you know the various elements are in place for it to be rigorous and critical and thinking and empirical where possible um, uh, uh, direct experience will only enrich the the study it seems to me, in my, in my particular opinion, but of course, there are many opinions and, and everyone is welcome to their opinion on the podcast. So yeah. I really think that hybrid stance, um, it's burgeoning. It's burgeoning at uh, the academy and it's burgeoning. It's, uh, it's growing. Um, it took me quite some time. I teach online. I've taught online for, I don't know, five to seven years. Only in the last year or two have I been able to found a school. And it's taken me ever to figure out that the students, the ideal students, are uh, practitioners who are also very heady and want to know the scholarship as well. So it seems to me the world is changing and uh, there are a great many people at the Academy and beyond who want that um, um, cross-pollination. Yes? Um, yeah, I wonder, the people that you refer to or the phenomenon that you refer to, how do I phrase this question? Uh, for whom is the Western psychological complement necessary? For whom, who, for, 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 who, 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 who in particular needs that to complement their yogic quest, would you say? This is, uh, this is for people who've been practicing yoga and meditation for a long time and still experience reoccurring uh, patterns of behavior that are on the verge of being compulsive that are intense, that whenever they act out, they act out in big, in a big way, an intense way, and that um, has serious consequences for their life and others. And this can happen. Um, it depends on their understanding of yoga and meditation. Uh, but um, so this is, this is the book. It, this is where, uh, where it is too intense when it takes such a long time to resolve issues of anger or jealousy of self or self-sabotaging or, um, you know, walking in the world with a sense of being a victim, etc. So these serious issues or trauma, traumatic uh, experiences that people have, events that people have, that merely by sitting in a few sessions of meditation, it's not enough because once you are out of this, the meditation, what we have deeply in our psyche is what we call samskaras. And samskaras are dormant mental imprints that were registered or etched into our mind as a reaction to an event. And it is dormant. And it is dormant in a sense that it is transparent and we, we do not really see it. For example, we can see it now. 
uh, some, per, some person can sit in his room listening to beautiful music, relaxed, and everything is wonderful. But then that person can get on the road and drive, and someone may overtake him without indicating. So, you know, our person who drives can be immediately be triggered. It means that he had some scar inside, that the circumstances have triggered it and caused him to act out. Like he can yell and scream and, and you know, say a few words about <laughs> nasty words to the other person, etc. Uh, I mean, sometimes I heard into radical uh, cases where people got into, a, you know, violence on a place of parking. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so this is the samskaras. But, and what I offer also in my scholarship, talking about samskaras, many speak about samskaras, but they do not speak about the content of samskaras. What, what is a samskara, basically? Beyond the, um, beyond the definition and the etymology of samskara, there's no a real discussion about samskaras in terms of the psychology. Uh, anyway, through the books that I read, I didn't see alive and connected to our daily life. So in my book, I bring, I bring it to life somehow through reading into the literature. Like, let's say I took uh, Scrooge from Dickens' story, you know, Christmas Carol. I took him as a, as a protagonist, as a figure, a profile on which I, I, I do all this analysis of samskara, vasana, and klesha, and then how we practice the opposite through the night. So this is an example, or I take case, different case studies and I explain that. Uh, if you'd like me, I, I'm happy to elaborate on that. Um, yeah. Sure, you can feel free to. Uh, another question that comes to mind is, um, would you say that this need to complement the yoga quest uh, arises because uh, of the different setting that individuals are engaging these philosophies while in the world, while engaged in particular vocations and relationships, and perhaps um, in, uh, in, a, in its original context, these philosophies were among the cloister, among those who were removed from the world. Would you say that that relationship or, or, or placement in the world is what um, requires this additional psychological work? Uh, look, if I, I, I find myself in, a, in an awkward place, because if I say that there is a need for Western psychology, what it implies that the dharma, that the path of yoga is insufficient or is, um, is lacking something. And uh, so for me, uh, I can't say that. I, I think and I believe that the Dharma path, uh, whether taken, whether in a cave or in life, is, is a full, profound path and complete in itself. However, when I speak about Western psychology, it is just a notion of, um, I'm speaking about the, um, the long term and the short term. The Dharma is good for the long term if we believe in reincarnations, etc. But if we are existentialists and, and, believe, and, but, and also practitioners of yoga, and for us what exists is just right now and this lifespan, okay? So, we would, so Western psychology would be really helpful. So this is, where, um, this is how I relate to that. 
Yeah, the, the most one of the most fascinating aspects of the argument you're making actually pertains to various coaching conversations I've had. I have clients who come to me for what we would call personal growth issues. There may be relationship issues. There may be career transition issues. Uh, there may be blocks, particular setbacks, patterns. And more and more, there are folks who actually are coming for spiritual purposes, textual exegesis, um, uh, practices. And um, time and time again, I say that um, personal growth and spiritual growth need to complement each other. Because I met a great many people who are quite advanced spiritually, but caught up in their teenage or their youthful emotional baggage and really they they have astonishing wisdom and abilities even and yet they've got these patterns of perhaps envy perhaps issues and security that haven't been worked through and yet i've met other people who may be business people who may be more mundane oriented people and they've done so much work on their their personal growth and their psyche that they've necessarily become uh, attained a more spiritual outlook so it's it's interesting to me in my mind i think of it as the complementarity between uh, what I think of as personal growth and uh, spiritual growth. So I just wanted to share that random, <laughs> arm, yeah. those armchair uh, reflections. Mm-hmm. What um, is this a line of thought that you're developing? I mean, is there is there additional work in this area, or is there, is there something that you're sort of finished with now? Uh, I've uh, I've developed. Yeah, I, I continue to work with the psychology of yoga in a different context, in a different context, but. I just would like to go one step back with your permission. So absolutely, I may tell you. I may tell you about of a case study how these three um, layers of psychological uh, framework uh, takes place in in, in uh, Patanjali, for example. So let's let's assume, and this is a case study that I read um, in a, in a book by John Wellwood. Anyway, he speaks about um, a lady in her forties that goes to her, her guru, goes to her guru, and tells her gurus that at home she's extremely frustrated with her husband, with her marriage, and um, she doesn't know what to do. She's bursting off of uh, anger from within, but nothing comes out, nothing be, is being expressed or being acted out, but she wants a way out of it. Uh, not out of the marriage, but out of this frustration and anger she feels inside. So he tells her the classical um, uh, instruction to uh, to be friendly, to be kind to him, to show kindness and warmth. Anyway, two weeks later on, two weeks later, she still feels even angrier. You know, it's like a person who's trying to sleep and trying to impose sleep, and the more he try he tries to impose sleep on himself, the more um, aggravated he is and agitated. So, um, and then she's going to uh, see John Wellwood, who's like a 30 years a Buddhist practitioner and also a clinical psychologist. And then there is a story from her childhood that whenever she was angry, her father would slap her on the face angrily and would send her to her room and would tell her, don't come back out of your room unless you are collected and composed and smiling. So... I was asking myself, what out of that experience, what samskaras, what possible mental imprints were etched into her mind, which she's not aware of? So 
the possible samskaras would be when I'm angry, I'm not loved. When I'm angry, I'm not safe. When I'm angry, I'm not wanted around. And this is what she has internalized. And her, in her 40s with her husband, she cannot really express that because she doesn't want to risk his love. She doesn't want to risk the sense of belonging. So this is where she is at. Now, these are the samskaras. These samskaras are dormant and latent. We are not aware of them. We are aware only of the symptoms of it. So above that, there is that layer of vasanas. We call it the um, vasanas are patterns of behavior. This is the next layer that Patanjali is speaking about. So we can see immediately looking at this kind of samskaras, what patterns of behavior such a person will develop. Okay? So we'll see that person will be a pleaser, that person will seek all the time to satisfy the environment just in order not to risk that sense of belonging or affection coming out of people. Now, so these vasanas have about five ways of expression. We call it the kleshas, which are causes of affliction. So the two obvious one, which is raga and dvesha. So a per, such a person will be attracted to situation where he doesn't need, he's not confronted, he doesn't need to confront anyone. Everything is nice and harmonized, okay? And a person will reject any sense of confrontation or risking, risking that connection and love he has in his life. Uh, but in a, you can say that about every person, but for that person, this is his psychological network. And then there is this notion of asmita, which is the sense of I-amness. This is the I, this is the I, I am, we add to every sentence, I am angry, I am attracted to this, I am rejecting this. This is how our ego solidifies. And then when we are in a state where definitely we do not see situations the way they are, it means that we are in, we are in some kind of, um, there's some obscuration in our life. We do not see things the way they are. And then there is always the fear of death as Abhinivesha, underneath, pushing. So you see how these three layers work, work within life of the 21st century practitioner, how they, how they manifest. So this is something which I wanted to explain, how we can name a samskara. We can give it a, an identi identity sentence and relate to that. Yes, it's, um, it seems to me anyhow that... Um yogic psychology, if you will, can be quite a useful tool for um, approaching, for mapping, for understanding human behavior. Um, you know, I'd like, could you say a, a bit more about what you talk about, the first sort of inkling you had to do this work? You also mentioned it in the book where there are folks who had attained spiritual experiences or studied but then returned to their lives and were sorely disappointed that the behaviors, their 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 clashes, if you will, or their behaviors, were very much alive. Could you say a bit more about that? I think that's an important point for the basis of your research. Yeah. Well, what I can say, like as a as an umbrella kind of an argument, that these people who touched the peaks of meditation and came back to the West, 
What happened is that they had some scars, they had their dormant mental imprints that were there and was, were not resolved, were not attended to. And when they came to the West, what happened is that these samskaras were, treat, were triggered. It is in the same way that, you know, you take a seed and if you put it in the right soil with the right light, right water, it will germinate. So in the same way, they came with some seed in the psyche, seeds in the psyche that they were not attended. And when these seeds may, met the right circumstances, they germinated and caused these people to act out. And yeah, and, uh, so I can I can speak of various ex- uh, testimonies from the book that everyone can read, but one of them is that you know a person after twelve years having these wonderful experiences came back to the West, and in the first two years, in the first two years, many people were attracted to him because obviously there was something beautiful and clean and radiant about his appearance. And then, um, after, um, in these two years, he had a group of students. He taught meditation. And then he decided to open two businesses. And he opened these two businesses. And he entered into this commercial world that was draining his interest, in his, um, that was, were attracting his interest and draining his energy um, in terms of the energy that he wanted to dedicate to teaching. And before he knew, he was locked into business um, difficulties. How I was running the business, he had a partner, and the partners, you know, were stealing money. And before he knew, he found himself um, without the resources, disappointed, upset. Um, he divorced his wife because these economical uh, difficulties actually uh, also triggered the harmony or challenged the harmony he had with his wife. And they, have the, and they, they divorced. And um, yeah, so this is an example. Instead of using that empathy, that love, or uh, the clarity, um, uh, you could see that uh, it wasn't enough. One thought that comes to mind, it, it's yeah. been a number of years since I looked at the yoga sutras but if not if i'm not mistaken there is an aphorism about toasting the seeds burning the seeds yeah um, and so one wonders just for the sake of argument or just intrigue interest one wonders if the folks who had the experiences one wonders if whether or not they reached the zenith of potential. Because if I'm not mistaken, and I could be mistaken because the Yoga Sutras are certainly far to my area, my primary area is uh, the Puranas, in particular the Devi Mahatmya, I work on the epics as well. Um, If I'm not mistaken, at the level that Patanjali is speaking of, the seeds are toasted such that if you were to return to mundane life, there wouldn't be a trigger. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's one thought that came to mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm totally with you. However, this kind of statement for me belong again, which is true. However, it belongs to the what I call the long term of time. This is for the long term. This is where you can achieve it. Because basically, basically the paradigm of Patanjali is 
when you practice yoga on all its branches, not only psychology, but on all its branches, what, whenever you practice, you create positive samskaras. He calls it the Niroda samskaras. And they are positive samskaras in, in, in the sense that they induce peace in our mind. They induce clarity, peace. They induce um, stillness in the mind and restraint of mental processes. So what is happening is that, if we'll take the metaphor of seeds, so what is happening, let's assume you have what you, we call the negative samskaras, those that create psychological issues and mental issues. He calls it vyutana samskaras. This you can read, I think, in Sutra 50 in the first chapter. So he's saying that this heap of niroda samskaras, the positive samskaras, will grow and develop and will outdo, it will outdo the other heap of negative one. It will outdo that. Some commentators translate the sutra that this heap of positive samskaras will eradicate the negative one, will, will annulify the negative one, will cancel. So we, they use different names. I would just say they will outdo because the samskaras are still there, but they are then become parched. They decay. They, they become parched, these seeds. So in terms of Patanjali, um, definitely this is the paradigm of yoga. And uh, I mean, all I can say, I believe, I believe that this is what it is. And again, for me personally, it relates to the long run. I don't want to wait until I reach that point so the negative will be dissolved. Because until then, I live with people. I live with the people I love. I, I, I have colleagues. Um, I have psychological issues that I want to resolve. So I don't want to wait until then. I want to do something now. And this is why I, um, I attended the Practicing the Opposite, Pratipaksha Bhavana, which he mentions in Sutra 234, if I recall. And I developed it to a way that I can practice it on a daily basis. And telling myself and others, if I hit a wall, I would go and, and seek the help of whatever psychology can offer me today. But I continue for the long run on my dharmic path. This, this, is, my, this is my statement here. Now, this, um, this practice of uh, Pratipaksha Bhavana, it's, uh, it's uh, an important part of your book, and also it's, uh, it's an interesting part of Patanjali's theory. Could you unpack that or explain that for the listener? What does that mean, Pratipaksha Bhavana? Yeah, Pratipaksha Bhavana, Pratipaksha Bhavana means thinking or practicing the opposite. So Patanjali says that when one experiences uh, anger uh, as an expression of aversion, you know, I spoke earlier about the five kleshas, as an expression of aversion, or if one, for example, if one experiences um, um, jealousy as an experience of um, attraction because you are attracted to what another has. Uh, so, and if you experience um, delusion in terms of you do not see reality the way it is, which is that clash of avidya. So if you experience one of these three, you should practice the opposite. And then, uh, because the sutras are highly condensed, 
verses. Every word there you have to depict. So he's saying, if you experience these three situations in three levels of intensities and in the three times, past, present, and future, so we have it three by three by, by three. This sutra covers 27 modes of appearance of the kleshas. Okay? And then if something like that happens, so you should practice the opposite. And then the, no, the question is, what does it mean to practice the opposite? And what, is, what, what does it mean for the 21st practitioner, uh, 21st century practitioner as well? So I went and explored what, what, um, what modern commentators said, what New Age commentators said, what traditional commentators said, um, and I can click on each one of them very quickly, if it's okay. So sure. For example, there is the famous guitarist Carlos Santana, who spoke about uh, who spoke about practicing the opposite, and he was saying, the moment you feel angry, just remove yourself and sit somewhere and start repeating some affirmation, saying, "I'm patient, I'm patient." So my, what, I was, what came to mind is that in the midst of anger, it's very difficult to extricate oneself out to start with. And if you have been extricating out of that grip of that emotion, so to repeat, to repeat this affirmation, to repeat time and like it was a mantra, uh, it is not enough. It is not enough. Um, this is my uh, uh, answer to, uh, to the guitarist. Why is that? Because, uh, and here I approach, again, the research of psychology, and they were saying that repeating affirmation will not be helpful for the people who need them most. Okay? Because for being able to cultivate patience, you have to have already, you have to have already some fundamental seed of patience for what you say to resonate and to connect to what inside. So it means that you have to have already some, some scar of patience, a positive one, from which what you say to ground you and anchor you into that. It's like, um, and, and people that do not have it, the moment they're trying to cultivate it, they will be even more agitated. It's like a person who feels failure in his life, and then you ask him to say, oh, you're a success story. So they will feel like they are betraying themselves. They, they will feel already the dissonance. They will feel that friction and inner conflict that will cause them to be even more agitated. So I'm not saying that affirmations are good. They are very good. They can enhance a situation for someone, but they, they, I'm not sure whether they can heal fully and like a person with have a for example which has a low self-esteem and this is based on the psychology research and then there is another person Ramamurti, Ramamurti uh, Mishra who wrote a book about the psychology of yoga and then he, when he writes about the psychology of yoga he is a traditionalist and he speaks about Praktipasha Bhavana in the language of suppression in a language of imposing a new behavior, imposing a new behavior on the, on, on the old one. And when you approach this um, research, I've read a meta-analysis 
um, psychology research, their findings were very clear that suppression is not conducive, not to the body, not the mind, not to blood pressure, not to cultivating new behaviors, etc. However, I still, I, I, I don't go to the extreme, and I would still say, well, to a violent person, yes, you have to suppress your, your motivation or your um, drive to, 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 to be violent. So yes, suppression is still very important. However, this is not what I believe uh, Patanjali was leading. And, and here, um, I'm trying to think with the text, okay? So then... I approached a modern commentator, and the modern commentator spoke about it very intellectually in the sense of you have to inquire what caused you to behave in the way you behave. It's analytical, it's intellectual, and it it is a very good step to to self-understanding. However, intellectual understanding, uh, in most cases, is very dry, and it takes time to absorb this understanding to cause us to change our behavior. Okay, and then I approached a classical commentator. His name is um, Vyasa. He's the commentator from the fifth century, and his definition of um, Pratipaksha Bhavana is the closest one to which I uh, I identify with and support with support. He's saying to practice the opposite means to actually think about the consequences of your action merely to think about the consequences of your actions to see that your, uh, uh, the, you know, the result of your actions, this is good enough to extricate you from the grip of these glaciers. And But then, uh, as much as I agree with uh, Vyasa, Vyasa is saying also, He's not speaking about the consequences of our actions as um, hurting someone, hurting ourselves. This is not his main emphasis. He emphasized a very religious um, uh, approach or belief that if I'll cause harm to anyone, I will be reborn in hell. I will be reborn as an animal or I will suffer an illness, etc. But then bringing it to the 21st century, I said to myself, I don't want to act out of fear. I want to act out of understanding and through healing. This is what I want. And then I asked myself, how do I bring Vyasa's approach to the 21st century? And then I, had, I felt inclined to elaborate on that. And I felt that the first step would be to take is self-honesty. A self-honesty that, first of all, to admit to oneself and to others that I was taken by my pride. I was taken by my temper, and I was angry because of this and this and that. In a very, very, very honest way. In, in a radical, almost a radical honesty. And this I was taking after a research of um, a man named Stuart. He researched um, a monastery, a self, self, uh, a, a radical self-honesty practice in a monastery in the south of Egypt in the 4th century. This is where a junior monk will go to a senior monk and will pour his heart and mind to him. And the idea of this self-honesty is that when you behave in this way, your demons do not have where to hide. They come into light 
so they cannot play tricks on you anymore. That was the aim behind that practice. So with that self-honesty, if you can admit I was taken by my pride, uh, well, I'm a yoga teacher, I cannot allow myself to come across as vulnerable as this or that, so I have to take that persona. So all of this really uh, invite just between us and ourselves, okay? But then this, from this self-honesty is to go to what I call sensitivity. I don't want to call it empathy because empathy is a little bit um, selective, okay? But I would take empathy in a non-selective way, in a way where you really step uh, and take the other's position in order to understand where he's at, what's going on for him, and then relate to him accordingly and appropriately. So this is more like the Adam Smith uh, um, uh, approach, general approach. And, and then after you have gone through that process of understanding through empathy, empathy, there's usually a feeling of um, remorse. You feel, you feel uh, there's, a, there's a, a physical feeling in the throat because you understand that you've done something bad. And then there is that remorse that comes, eh? oh, I don't want to repeat it. I don't want to do it again. But this feeling or, or this statement comes after this feeling, of, you know, you feel the stomach tight or the throat tight. And then you say, I don't want to repeat it anymore. Uh, and then I took this practice and I found that bhavana, bhavana in Sanskrit can be also imagination. And then I thought to myself, with imagination learning from the story of Dickens, what happened to Scrooge, imagination can create a very vivid scene of the past also. You can see how you acted, your pattern of behavior in the past in a very fundamental event or formative event in in one's life. You can create the scene, you can see the body language, you can see the face of people. The face of people are so vulnerable, are so, they can really disclose for most of them, the pain, uh, the pleasure, everything. The body language can disclose almost, almost. And then through relating to the body language, you can participate and relieve the scene, relieve what happened. And then you can, um, if, if it happened when you were 15, but now you are 40 or 50, so you can see it from a 40 or 50 years old point of view, through self-honesty, through the empathy, through the remorse, or remorse and start diluting in this way your glaciers and samskaras and vasanas. So you can take it into the, to the future because you know your patterns of behavior. You know how you behave like if someone has, let's say, social anxiety. So one can visualize a social event in the future. And one can view how people, you know, people disposition, their body language. And then he can see himself through self-honesty, through empathy, and through remorse. And through that, that can itself can start biting and diluting his anxiety. Not only that, he can, after diluting his anxiety, he can say, okay, um, how, how do I see myself in that environment? Okay, so this is the greatness of that exercise 
of Patanjali, which means, you know, the three by three by three, the three level of intensities of our kleshas, the three different times, and the three major uh, kleshas of uh, Raga, Dvesha as a aversion, and Raga as attraction, and Avidya as delusion or as obscuration of reality. And, and so this is an adoption, uh, an adaptation to the 21st century relating to Dickens, who is considered by many as the first psychother- uh, psychoanalyst that precedes even uh, uh, Freud. Yeah. Thank you very much for that exposition and application of uh, yoga philosophy. Uh, we're pretty much at time for today. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we close? I just do one previous question of yours. Uh, um, first of all, thank you for uh, your questions because they got me going <laughs> in, a, in a good way. I really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your own experiences, which also uh, invited me to you're welcome. I mean, yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's that's yeah. my that's my dharma as the podcast host. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. So about my next project, you asked uh, that question. I just want to answer it um, quickly. Um, my current project is about Vivekakiyati. Vivekakiyati is a discerning insight that occurs in the in the very advanced stages of meditation. And this is a moment of discernment between one's ego, but not ego in a Freudian way, but ego as agency, as a sense of I amness, as a, as a center of thinking and acting and executing actions. Uh, uh, so discerning between that and the real self, the true self, which uh, is spoken about in Indian philosophies whether it is Purusha in the philosophy of yoga or, uh, or uh, in, in the Advaita Vedanta. So, and, and this insight comes, um, I am not who I think I am. I am not the source of awareness because this is what the ego does. It owns everything. It takes possession everything. This is the I we add to every statement that expresses our mental and psychological processes. And so this is also, uh, so this is my uh, current research. Actually, it is the, I may say that this book is nearly fully baked uh, and written um, in Hebrew and in English. And here also I offer, I propose a model of meditation that can help us to cultivate it already from the early stages of practicing yoga and how to, to do it. And it's a proposed um, thing. And basically, uh, when I say, when I propose the meditation, or, or like the Praktipaksha Bhavana, this kind of proposition, this is something that um, I have also practiced with students in various workshops, like, for example, with the Evam Institute, uh, I've been teaching uh, philosophy to yo- in yoga training uh, programs. So I've taught them the psychology of yoga. So I've been trying it with people in a safe way. You know, I cannot, um, uh, I cannot take people. I'm not a psychologist. I don't want to take people to any traumatic events. But just to 
become acquainted with mild patterns of behavior, something that doesn't, we are not that charged because of them. So this is also what contributes to my studies, this meeting and trying, and I don't want to say experimenting, but practicing it together with people and see how do they respond. Well, you'll so have to return to the... Yeah. So this is one project of mine. And, okay, probably Safis. I have a few more in the pipe. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was saying you'll have to return to the podcast once that, uh, once that uh, loaf is baked. Uh, um, uh, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much. For those of you who've been listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Giddy Ifergan of Monash University in Australia and the outskirts of Melbourne, I believe. Um, until next time, well, we've been speaking, of course, on his brand new Equinox book, The Psychology of the Yogas. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, keep reading, and um, keep contemplating the utility of yogic philosophy. Take care.